Welcome to Conversations About Government in Iowa. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. Deb Kozell, Senior Legislative Analyst with the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency, interviewed Paul Taki, State Forester at the Department of Natural Resources. As State Forester, Paul is responsible for all forest activities in the state, and that includes managing seven state forests and managing the operations of the State Forest Nursery. The nursery is located on 98 acres in the southern part of Ames and was established in the 1930s. The nursery produces and sells native bare root tree seedlings that are sold to landowners for forestry projects, wildlife development, and erosion control. The following interview discusses the various issues at the State Forest Nursery. Funding for the nursery is from the sales of bare root trees and shrub seedlings. Over the years, the nursery has had boom periods where they have sold large amounts of seedlings and the sales revenue paid for operations. However, over the past five years, sales have fallen and the revenue from the sales of seedlings has not been adequate to cover the costs of production and operations. To address this problem, the department is currently in the process of increasing the prices through the administrative rules process. Hi, my name is Deb Cozell and I work for the Legislative Services Agency or the LSA. Today I am talking to Paul Taki, the state forester in the Department of Natural Resources, which we also call the DNR. And we'll be talking about the State Forest Nursery that is located in Ames. Hello, Paul. Thanks for discussing the State Forest Nursery. Can you just give a general overview of how the State Forest Nursery works? Okay, the, the State Forest Nursery supplies bare root conservation seedlings to private landowners and for use on public land. These seedlings are basically vary in size from 8 to 24 inches and they're available for conservation use, for wildlife habitat, for reforestation, for water quality projects such as forested riparian buffers, and they're also available for landowners who have smaller acreages through our various packets that we provide, the wildlife packets, the creative packet, and songbird packets. Okay, so when you talk about packets, is that like a special species of trees? The packets are prepackaged trees. The typical packet has 200 seedlings in it, and those the, the landowner can, if it's create a packet, they can pick four different species, so they'll get 50 each. If it's a prepackaged packet, we'll designate the species that are available, and they're really designed for the landowner to reach a specific goal. For instance, for an upland game bird packet, we would have species there of shrubs that are good for upland game birds. Okay. For the pollinator packet, we would have species of trees and shrubs that are good for various bees and butterflies. Okay. And then we also offer, this year we started offering monthly specialty packets that were only available for one month, things like fall color packets, wild edible packets, high value hardwood packets. And it really is trying to market to landowners' specific desires for what they want to have on their property. Whether they want to have fall color, whether they want to attract upland game birds, whether they want to, in a few years, be able to go out on their acreage and pick some various fruits or nuts that are edible for human consumption. So that's really a goal to market to some of the goals of the landowners. And oftentimes, some of our customers don't have a lot of knowledge of what particular tree or shrub species will help them meet their goal. 
So by prepackaging that, we do the work for them. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So how are the products sold in, like, do you have a season? You, do you sell all throughout the year? Or do you have, like, a time you plant those seedlings and then you harvest? Or how does all the work? Okay, as far as the sales aspect goes, we start taking orders on August 1st. And then typically orders are completed by June 1st to June 15th. Uh, there's always a few stragglers. And to run the nursery is... So August 1st you take the order or the April 1st? August 1st. Okay, for the previous year? Yeah, so for this fall or next spring, people could order as early as August 1st. Oh, okay. And then when they order, they'll designate what week they would like to have the product delivered. So we lift a little bit and ship in the fall. For people that have some sites that are kind of wet, they like to plant those in the fall because if they get a lot of spring rain, then they're not plantable. But they can designate, and typically we can, for fall, we can only lift after the leaves drop off of the trees or shrubs, and then we can only lift until the ground is no longer frozen. So also, people who plant, they have to be able to get the trees in the ground. So the window of opportunity for fall planting is not very big, but, but we do try to accommodate that need for some people. But then in the spring, We'll start lifting as soon as the frost is out of the ground and the soil is dry enough, which this year we were able to start lifting in early to mid-March. Typical years, it can be late March or early April. So it's very weather dependent. And then we like to have everything out of the ground before leaf out that's going to be sold, which is sometimes a bit of a guessing game because landowners have a tendency to order late. They don't think about their planting until sometimes April 15th or sometimes May 15th and by then stuff is leafing out. So there's a period of time where we know what we've sold and we can lift that and then we kind of have to guesstimate the rest so that when people call we have supplies but we don't want to have so much lifted that we can't sell and then it's sitting in the cooler and would either have to be then thrown out or if possible, uh, maybe replanted back in the ground, which is hard on the seedlings and with a limited amount of staff. It's just another chore you gotta do. Sure. Because really, the way things go at the nursery, especially in the spring, we are lifting trees. That means that's a process that we utilize to get them out of the seedling bed so that they can be then taken to the cooler for storage. Then they come out of the cooler and they go on the grading line. And the grading line, is where we sort the seedlings into two different sizes, the 8 to 16 and the 17 to 24. Okay. And also where we call out seedlings that don't have enough caliper, they're not stocky enough, maybe they're too small, they don't meet that 8-inch threshold. So they probably wouldn't grow. Well, they would grow, but they would grow with enough TLC. Okay. But what we found is that our customers really value a consistent product sure. and we advertise that we're selling an 8 to 16 inch seedling we don't want to sell them a 7 inch seedling I or see. a 6 inch seedling they have a certain expectation and if you fail to meet that expectation with your quality then they'll go they may go somewhere else okay. so you know, f- from our perspective if we sell you a, a 17 to 24 inch seedling you should get that we shouldn't substitute a 16 inch seedling or a 14 inch seedling because then we're cheating you as the customer. That's not good. That's not good. In 2010, we were having some issues with quality control because one of our longtime nursery managers retired, and it was a transitional period. And so some stuff got through the grading line that was subpar, Uh and we heard about it from our customers, 
but the bigger fear is there's probably some customers that also weren't satisfied that didn't contact sure. us. So we really, since 2010, have been putting a strong emphasis on really delivering a quality product. We think the only way that the State Forest Nursery can stay in business, regardless of the price of the seedling, is if we're delivering a quality seedling to our customers. So over the last 20 years, have sales increased or decreased or kind of a bouncy effect? Yeah, typically what we have seen is from 1985 to about 2002, we sold a lot of tree seedlings, and that was largely related to two factors. One was the Conservation Reserve Program. Sure. And in the early uh, 90s, the Conservation Reserve Program offered a 10-year contract if you planted grass and a 15-year contract if you planted trees. So there was a lot of people planting trees to get that additional five years. And, and that also coincided with, in the mid-80s, we had the farm crisis, prices were low. Frankly, the whole reason the Conservation Reserve Program was established was in a response to the farm crisis and low commodity prices. So uh, people were looking for alternatives to row crop production because they needed the stability of regular income that the Conservation Reserve Program offered because it cost-shared the planting of the grass or trees but then also offered you, for trees, a 15-year rental payment as well that was guaranteed income for that farmer for 15 years. So we really had a boom in the early 90s and then we had another boom in the late 90s and early 2000s due to the advent of what was called continuous CRP. Oh, okay. So those were practices that a landowner could sign up for any time throughout the year as opposed to the normal CRP which there were specific sign-up periods. So. The continuous CRP really impacted forested riparian buffer plantings. That was a continuous practice. And then they offered, the federal government offered you basically 90% cost share to plant. So they would cover 90% of your tree planting expenses, the seedlings, the planting, the weed control. And then they also would offer a $150 an acre sign-up bonus. Wow and then a 15-year rental payment. Oh, okay. So it was probably a big boom. So it was a big boom, especially when they introduced forested riparian buffers on marginal pasture land. Marginal pasture land was non-crop land that was eligible along uh, streams or creeks or rivers. At that time, I was working in southern Iowa as a tree planting contractor and consulting forester, and there was a lot of marginal pasture land then that wasn't being pastured, so it didn't have cattle on it, it didn't have crops on it, they weren't haying or haying that property. So it was just property that was sitting there not providing any income for the landowner. So when there was an opportunity to get some of that property into CRP at $84 an acre, suddenly so you're getting $84 an acre for property that was giving you no income before. So and that was the a, government's pay for a lot of the cost. The government's paying for 90% of the cost and then giving you a $150 an acre sign-up bonus. At the end of that, you were making money by planting trees, and then you got the rental payment on top oh, of it. Oh, yeah. So it was a heck of a deal. In a fact, deal. during the height of that, we were selling 5.5 million seedlings uh, at the nursery, and uh, there was over 13,000 acres of trees planted in about, Iowa that year. That's so, about when I started. Yeah. So that was the boom. Well, then, um, as time went on, it's pretty tough to offer a better deal no, than... Yeah, exactly. And so you got the people in that had the right set of circumstances for them to get into the program. So they got in in the first three or four 
five years. So after that, people were in, there was no new incentives, and the people that didn't want to plant trees on their property with those incentives five years ago weren't going to do it now. So we started to see a decline in the sale of seedlings. We, we went from five million to about three million, and then pretty much through 2003 to about 2009, it was just a, a slow and steady decrease. And some of the factors that impacted that were, there was kind of an economic downturn, so that affected people's ability to uh, have the income to plant. And then following that, we went through a period of two or three years of really high commodity prices, really high land prices for crop ground. And so it was kind of the double whammy. First it was the economy, and then the economy recovered, but along with that was those high commodity prices and very difficult decision for a farmer to decide to take land out of production when there's that much income derived from commodity prices. In fact, we did an analysis of seedling sales and compared that to the average price of a bushel of corn since 1973. And what we find is if you take those two lines and chart them on a graph, and if you flipped them over, and then shifted, a, shifted the seedling sales line about two years from the commodity line, yeah. they were almost identical. Oh, so my. when commodity prices are high, seedling sales usually dip. Yeah. When commodity prices lower, then we see some increase. Now, if those low commodity prices are coupled with some brand new, very lucrative incentives for landowners, then we see a big spike in tree planting. So no big spike in the last five years? No, no, and, and what we've seemed to have hit, I guess what I call the, hopefully, the firmer bottom, we seem to have landed the last four or five years at selling between about a 1 to 1.2 million a year. Okay. Sometimes it varies. We haven't seen the final numbers for this year yet, but last year we had a slight increase, which was the first slight increase in, oh, in many years, and I haven't seen the final numbers for this year, but it looks like based on income levels, our sales are pretty much the same as they were last year, give or take maybe fifty to 100,000 seedlings. Okay. So that's the story on the, how sales have gone. Can you just kind of briefly talk about how the nursery is funded? Prior to 1986, the nursery was funded through sales of nursery stock and through funding from the state general fund. Okay. In 1986, the Code of Iowa was changed And the way the code reads is that the nursery will have prices that cover the costs of growing the plants. So over the years, since 1986, basically what that's come to mean is the nursery has to cover the costs of all the costs associated with having a nursery. If I was an attorney, which I'm not, you might be able to go, well, that's the cost of growing plants, but what about the cost of grading them and shipping them and etc. Well, well, materials, yeah. supplies, yeah. utilities. Yeah. The bottom line is over the years what it's meant is if it costs $800,000 or a million dollars a year to grow those plants and run the, everything at the nursery, if that's a $800,000 budget or you know, years ago it was a million dollar plus budget, currently it's around $815,000, $820,000. But uh, if that's the money we want to expend, then we need to generate that revenue. Okay. So the problem has come in with the current prices and the current sales levels. We're not generating that revenue to run the place and replace aging equipment and 
make sure your infrastructure is kept up. You probably need to generate eight hundred to nine hundred thousand dollars a year. So what happens is when we have these years where we generate five hundred thousand to six hundred thousand, we have to do some things to defer so we don't have those costs. So we'll have a eighty thousand dollar a year equipment line item in the nursery budget. If we're not selling enough trees, then we do not buy the equipment. So we, you know, we save eighty thousand dollars in expenditures because we don't have the revenue. But you can only defer equipment, equipment purchases for so long. And when it's been probably five, five or six years since the last big equipment purchase, and then before that it was probably another five or six years, you start to run into real problems keeping the operation running sure. because the equipment's not running. Right. So, and really the only big equipment purchase we had in the last probably eight to ten years was a tub grinder because if we didn't have that to grind cobs to mulch the seedling beds, you can't get a crop. Oh, okay. That might have been eight years ago, perhaps we bought a tractor. So we only buy equipment if it's absolutely, if we don't have it, you can't get the crop in the ground, you can't get the crop out of the ground. You wind up kind of patching stuff together. To go on to the expense side, do you have, what, two, three people that work there full-time and seasonal, or? Currently, if we're fully staffed, we would have a nursery manager, three technicians, an administrative assistant who takes orders and things like that, and a forester two position. Last spring, we had the nursery manager and two technicians. To get by, we had people come in from the field and we did have some seasonals that we hired, but typically the issue with seasonals is that they don't have the experience sure. to really know what's going on. And the grading of the product? Yeah, the grading... Does that take some training? Yeah, we have uh, somebody in the grading room, and our grading is done typically by either contract labor or inmates. This year we experimented with contract labor, a crew that came in from Wisconsin. We utilized them mostly for lifting seedlings. They did a great job, and so it was, I think, a good experiment. We also use inmate labor. The inmates themselves are not that expensive, but there's some issues they have to travel to the site so that the inmates are either in Rockwell City or Newton. They have to have a guard that accompanies them. So we're, and, and frankly what we found is that the contract crew did three times as much work as a, in a third of the time as oh, the inmates. Yeah, so we're continually exploring what's the best option to reduce some of those labor costs. And we also know because of all the things that go on, especially in the spring, you're lifting, you're grading, you're shipping, and then later in the spring, then you got to be thinking about preparing seed for seeding the beds because there's stuff that needs to be seeded in late May or early June. It's really more than when you have one nursery manager and two field staff. They just can't do it all. I mean, they certainly can't do it all in eight hours a day. We've had um, our three field staff that work up there, this includes the nursery manager, from March 1st to June 1st, they had combined over 450 hours of overtime. And so that's very difficult <laughs> on the morale, and it's very difficult on their families and it's because they're working on weekends, they're working late nights. It's just kind of tough. But a nursery operation is like farming. Sure. When the weather's right and the, the crop is ready, you got to go, and you can't say, well, I got my eight hours in today, and so I'm done, and you can't go. If Saturday is the day, that you can go and it's been bad for a week or 10 days and Saturday's good, 
and it looks like Monday might be bad weather-wise, then you go on Saturday if you can. Sure. So That's great that they do that. It's difficult. So we're hoping to generate enough revenue to at least add back one of the vacant field positions. I don't think at this point we're comfortable doing more than that. Okay. So back in 1999, when I was still on the committee, um, we created the Forestry Management Enhancement Fund, and that's where a nickel from one the shrub, I think. In conifers. Ten, conifers, thank you. Ten cents from deciduous tree yep. goes to this fund. Now, do you think that fund, It was the, the intent was to fund, this was during the boom, and it would fund five FTEs. Do you think that would be necessary to keep this fund, or is it still needed, or... Any thoughts on that? Well, here's my thoughts. First of all, because it's in the Iowa Code, we still have to follow the law and a nickel and a dime from every hardwood, a nickel for every conifer and a dime for every hardwood tree or shrub goes into the fund. But the reality is that when we were selling five and a half million a year, we could fund those five positions. Sure. That's what I was wondering. Especially in, in 99, you know, you fund those positions, they're hired probably at the lower end of the pay scale. Sure. But then as time went on and sales decreased, that fund no longer generated enough income for those positions. And so what we had to do was find alternative ways to keep those positions funded, writing competitive funding grants with the Forest Service. Basically, we had to go out and figure out how to get revenue from somewhere else, which we did, and which we continued to try to do. But uh, the reality is, currently, that fund probably really right now is supporting the equivalent of one FTE. Yeah, look, it's not as much. It's no. not nearly the money it used to be. No, it generates maybe a hundred thousand. That's what. A year. Yeah. The problem we have is that's money that comes away from the nursery. That's so, what I'm wondering if it'd be better used for the nursery. Well, it not better. Yeah. But just a consideration. Yeah. The reality of the situation is that some of that money is utilized to help the nursery too. You know, because it, under the code it says it fund these positions and do good things for forestry. So without the nursery, there's no money at all right. for those for anything. So we got to try and keep the nursery running first. So it's kind of a drag on the income that comes into the nursery well, budget and cost center. Another kind of expense. Yeah. Or and, place you got to put the money. Yeah. And so whether that should be changed or whether it could be changed since it's code, that's a legislative decision. We just do the best we can with what we got. Since you've had some declines in sales, do you have alternate plans for producing the seedlings? Um, Do you still, like you said, you talked about the different packets you offer to maybe stimulate sales. And I know I've heard some of your conversations before about the number of quantity people have to buy. Have you looked at any way of repackaging or just getting increases in sales? Yeah, that's always a consideration. So this year what we did was we did some marketing addressing the packets. We have a listserv, an email list of former customers and clients and and sometimes uh, license holders. We send out emails through that listserv advertising the various packets. The different packets and that marketing, which doesn't cost anything or very little, some staff time. Through that marketing we sold 600 packets. Oh, that's good. Which the equivalent about fifty thousand dollars. Oh, good. Good job. Which is helpful. Yeah, it's helpful. So that's one thing we can do. As far as selling in smaller quantities, one of the issues we have is much of what we do at the nursery is controlled by Chapter seventy one of the Administrative Code. That's where the prices are set. Okay. That's where the quantities that we can sell are set. 
And uh, so the average landowner, if they're not buying a packet, and they've never ordered before, they have to order 500 seedlings. If they ordered last year, this year they can call and they can order 100. That's a provision for replacement plants. Oh, okay. If they order a packet, there's 200 seedlings in a packet. So for most landowners, you're either going to have to order 500 or 200. And one of the things we heard at our public meetings, both the pre-clearance comment meeting and the current public comment period, a lot of landowners would like us to be able to sell in smaller quantities. Okay. So what's like a cost? Does the average cost for 500? 500 would run with the new price. If you bought 500 large, it's going to probably run about $450. Oh, okay. If you bought the small, it's going to run a little bit over $300 okay. to 500 Okay. So... I mean, it's not a lot, but it's an investment. Yeah. So that's kind of what those costs would be. But it's just different um, alternative plans you've done for the seedlings just to oh. generate more sales. Yeah, yeah we, we try and do as much as we can within the restrictions of the administrative rule. Okay. And I guess I would say this too, is we had a lot of comments, not a lot, but we had several comments about changing, you know, basically saying we needed to change the administrative rule to allow greater flexibility in quantities, greater flexibility in setting of the price so that the nursery could be more reactive and sensitive to changing market conditions. And I think one of the things that we're continuing to sort of explore, the packets is one way, but in the heyday of tree planting sales, 15, 20, 30 acre tree plantings were quite common. And it was not uncommon to have 100 to 150 acre tree wow. plantings. Those huge tree plantings are just almost non-existent right now. What we're seeing, I think, is a shift from that big tree planting because of the issues we talked about earlier. Plus, there's more competition now for that CRP acre because there are grass practices yeah. that will also offer a 15-year contract. But there are a lot more small acreage owners than there used to be. They can utilize maybe not 500 trees or shrubs, maybe 100, maybe 150. We're trying to figure out how to adapt to that changing market some of the restrictions in the rule with quantities really makes it difficult for us to do that. Sure. We would probably like to explore that further in the future, but when we put together our current proposed administrative rule, we focused on one issue because sometimes when you try and do too many things at sure. once in a rule, it becomes confusing for people. And Our primary and greatest concern at this point was to address the revenue sure. situation as best we can, but in the future we'd like to address some of these other issues to see how we can be more flexible, be more market responsive, and really um, serve a greater number of the people in Iowa. In an average year we have 1,700 to 2,000 individual customers. Wow. If we could better package something for the small acreage owner, we could at least increase the number of customers uh, and hopefully at least maintain the current quantity or, or more of sales. So when you were per working on the administrative rule for the price increase, how did you determine what the price should be in that rule? Well, basically what I did was I looked at what income or what revenue we needed at the nursery to operate at a level to have the staffing that we need to do a quality job, to have the income level that we needed to address aging equipment and infrastructure and then said, okay, if this is the number of dollars we need, and if this is the number of seedlings that we think we can sell, 
I just took that revenue need divided by the number of seedlings and came up with the price. We sell about 1.1 to 1.2 million a year, maybe 1 to 1.2 million. So the figure that we used for sales was about 1,060,000 seedlings. Okay. We're trying to accommodate at least a slight, maybe a hundred to 200,000 drop in demand because of the price increase. We hope that doesn't occur. Okay. We do know that our price is still a bargain price. We've looked at other nurseries in the Midwest and saw what they're charging because we also wanted to make sure that we weren't, we hope not to price ourselves out of the market as well. What we found is that the majority of, of both private sector nurseries and some of the, the public sector nurseries we're still lower than them. Oh, that's good. The state of Missouri, they have a cheaper seedling. They only offer one size, but they are also subsidized by state government. So they get funding outside of the money that they generate. Yeah, they have a natural resource trust fund. Right. So they have another source of revenue. And there's a private sector nursery where the seedling cost is cheaper, but as one of the forestry contractors that plants trees for a living uses our product, he mentioned at the public comment meeting in Dubuque that that seedling looks cheaper, but by the time you add on the 25% for shipping and handling sure. that's added, the state nursery is then is still about the same price even with the price increase. His comments were great. He thought the quality and the way that we ship the seedlings was superior as well. So oh, That's good to hear that. So, so those are the things that we hope will continue to retain those clients that we have. Talk about this a little bit about your marketing and strategy. And you said the email was a good way to get some new customers. But do you have any advertising campaigns or any marketing that you do each year to get sales up? Other than the email stuff we did this year or for the last few years, we did try some stuff in 2007 and eight. We did radio time, uh-huh. did ads on the radio. We used to spend a lot of time going to like uh, the Pheasants Forever shows oh, okay. and various and sundry home shows. We never really indicated that that caused any increase in sales. And when we think about what do you need to be a customer of the State Forest Nursery, it sort of breaks down. You need three things, in my opinion. One is you got to have land. Yes. You got to have a place to plant those trees and shrubs. If you don't have that, you're not going to be a customer. You got to have either the disposable income or some sort of a program that helps pay for the cost. So you got to be able to afford it either out of your own pocket or with financial assistance from federal or state government through some of the various conservation incentive programs. And then you got to have desire. you got to like trees. Yes. And so the only thing that we can really affect there is their desire to plant trees. The radio stuff, we tried to, to do that, but it's not cheap. Sure, no, it's not. And uh, when you're struggling to make ends meet <laughs> and your choice is spending ten or $15,000 buying radio time, or fixing the tractor that's just got a $7,000 repair bill yeah. to fix the tractor. We have experimented with some stuff, and we continue to try and figure out ways, but the bottom line is there's no budget for, like, a sustained campaign. And But we do have, you know, our district foresters that work with private landowners. Oh, we consider them part of our marketing and sales force because sure. they're talking with landowners. They're not just talking tree planting. They're talking forest management and everything. But... but 
we consider them part of our sales force as well. Are there even private nurseries that can sell this kind of seedling, and do they want to, or it's not profitable, or, or yeah. do you have um, any competition with the private sector? I mean, when there was a big boom, that was a big thing, you know, yeah. we're competing with the private sector, but I don't hear that so much anymore. In <laughs> Iowa, there was really only two private nurseries that produced anything remotely similar to what we do, the bare root conservation seedling. That was uh, Cascade Forest Nursery and then uh, Kelly Tree Farm. Cascade Forest Nursery, they're no longer in business. The, the owner retired and sold out. And, you know, it's a very specialized business, so it's hard to find somebody to come in and take yeah. it over. So they're no longer in business. And Kelly Tree Farm, they do sell some bare root stuff. It's a smaller quantity, but they also focus on potted material and landscape okay. stock. And in fact, when we were discussing what are we going to do with the nursery, we're going to try a price increase, we were looking at all options, including what if we close the nursery. I called Kevin Kelly with Kelly Tree Farm and talked to him. He said, Kevin, let me ask you a question. If we closed up shop and we're out of business, could you supply the million to 1.2 million seedlings to Iowans that we grow? And Kevin's response was, he didn't even think about it very long. He said, no, and I don't want to. And I don't want to because you can't make money growing bare root conservation seedlings. Okay. <laughs> um, so the real money in the private nursery sector is in a potted stock. It's a, you know that potted windbreak stock, that potted landscape stock, bald and burlap stock. Because you can sell a five to six foot tree, depending on the species, from anywhere from fifty to a hundred bucks. If it's a seven to ten foot tree or bigger, those might run two or three hundred dollars. Wow, yeah. So the profit margin is just better for that larger stock, which is great. And we don't want to sell that. We don't want to sell potted. We don't want to sell landscape stock. We want to sell conservation seedlings. But the fact of the matter is there's not a lot of money in it. Okay. You know, the whole reason the state nursery came into existence was because of the need for erosion control and reforestation that occurred in the 1930s after the during the the aftermath of the Dust Bowl era. Okay. So it existed then. It came into existence to meet a conservation need that wasn't being met anywhere else. And, and that's still it's, true. It stayed. Yeah, it continues. That that conservation need still continues to be there. And it over time, sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down okay. in terms of the number of seedlings you need. But, do we have any more production? We talked Department of Corrections, you said we have been involved. Is everything grown in Ames now, or is there some grown at Montrose? Does the yeah. Department of Corrections, are they involved in the nursery anymore? Yeah. In 1982, we opened a satellite nursery down near Montrose, Iowa, on prison industry land. Mm -hmm. And that was to help meet the growing demand at that time for seedlings. That's been a very good place to grow trees. It's a great partnership. And when we were growing 5 million or 4 million or 3 million or even 2 million and was selling that many, it was very needed to have that. But we seem to have hit this bottom of 1 to 1.2 million a year for the last 5 or 6 years. The bottom line is we probably don't need that facility. We can probably grow the million to million really probably a million and a half a year in, in the Ames facility. We just had to make a decision that as we looked at how we could cut expenses, because this hasn't been all about, well, how can we get more money, more money, more money, but it's also been 
how can we reduce our expenses? That's really the first step in this process. Absolutely. You know, the first step was really reducing expenditures and improving quality. And then if those things weren't effective in increasing revenue, that's why we're looking at the price increase now. But we did have some seedlings at Montrose this year that were lifted. There are just a few beds of seedlings left down there that will probably be lifted this fall. Okay. But basically, we removed all the staff from Montrose two or three years ago, and then the, the nursery staff from Ames would come down and help. But the issue there is it's three hours away from the Ames exactly. nursery. So every time, staff goes, yeah, every time staff goes down there, you basically lose a day of actually productive time. Absolutely. So there's that. It becomes difficult to have a nursery there that's not staffed, but we had to reduce. At one time, we had two technicians and a forester two down there. In order to try and reduce our costs, those positions went away. At one In 2010, we had a nursery supervisor and a supervisor of the district foresters both retire at the same time, actually late 2009. Instead of refilling both of those positions, we only refilled one. So we no longer have a day-to-day nursery supervisor at the nursery. We have a nursery manager okay. who's the team leader up there. We've reduced staff, I think, to the point if we reduce it any further, you can't function. You're not going to be able to produce a seedling. So we looked at the cost, but the bottom line is that we are no longer putting any new seed into Montrose, and we are going to be done there this fall. And uh, if there's irrigation stuff down there that we can utilize in Ames to help replace our aging irrigation up there. We're consolidating everything, the equipment, the staff, the resources, to focus on that one nursery in That's Ames. Good. And I think I maybe should point out, too, that there's really no infrastructure at Montrose. So there's no cold storage facilities. There's no place where you could grade the trees oh, and okay. ship them for shipping. So everything that was grown at Montrose was lifted and then came up to Ames for, transport right away to for Ames. grading and shipping. Okay. There's no option down there as far as having the infrastructure to have a nursery there. In fact, we did look at that. We looked at that hard with Iowa Prison Industries about putting facilities down there. Uh-huh. But just the cost of the coolers that you would need that we have currently in Ames to replace just the one big cooler... And we looked at moving that cooler, and we looked at building a new one. IPI did seven hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Oh my gosh! That's the the infrastructure that you have to sure. have and maintain. It was cheaper when it went in years ago, but replacing that now is would be oh, very yeah. very expensive. It would be. All right, I think we've talked about many things, but I was wanting to know if you had any closing comments about the nursery. Yeah, I think it's been a great interview. I've learned a lot, and I thought I knew a lot about it, so I know other people will learn a lot. Yeah, I have a couple of things, I think, to add. One is, one of the important reasons to continue to have a state forest nursery, there's a couple of reasons. One is that we have this demand for 1 to 1.2 million conservation seedlings. Somewhere that demand's going to be met. If we don't have it, if we're out of business, and the private sector in Iowa don't see it as a financially viable operation for them, then people will either go to other state nurseries, they'll go to other private nurseries out of state, and there's some concerns that we have there. One is that the further that you move plant material from one region of the country to the other, it's not as well adapted to our climate zones. Right. And so, in the long term, you can have some significant forest health issues just with that planting, because 
of the differences. Even species, bur oak is native to Iowa, bur oak is native to Texas. But if you brought Texas bur oak up here, it is adapted to a longer growing season, so it's probably going to get frost damage in the fall. It's probably going to want to leaf out too early in the spring, so it's apt to maybe get frost damage in the spring as well. So there's cumulative stress on those plants that make them more susceptible then to attacks by our native insect and disease pathogens. Oh, that's good to know. So there's that. Long term, it's sort of not a good strategy. And also with all of the exotic invasive species That's what that I was just thinking have. of. <laughs> so we, we know we have EAB in Iowa. You right. know, that can travel through firewood, but it can also travel in infected nursery stock. Oh, okay. I didn't um, know that. We have um, Asian longhorn beetle is in Ohio. Uh, they're having a hard time getting control of that because they didn't catch it fast enough. Unlike EAB, if you find that fast enough, it's controllable, but that could potentially hitchhike onto plant material. We have had some cases where rhododendrons from California have come into Iowa, and that's an alternative host for sudden oak death. And so when that happens, we've worked with APHIS PPQ to do some surveys to check for sudden oak death spores, which, you know, that's just added expense to somewhere else in your program. But fortunately, there wasn't anything there, but there's that. There's thousand cankers disease of walnut, and we know that that affects seedlings. And actually, the state nursery in Pennsylvania had an outbreak. Oh, it did. Thousand cankers disease of walnut. So my point in all that is, people are they want to plant something, they're going to find it. And if we're not growing it here with a native seed source in Iowa that stays in Iowa, that's going to be shipped to Iowa. They're going to go somewhere else. True. And that increases the chance that we could bring in something that then jumps from that plant material, that, that imported plant material, to our native forest. Oh, yeah. So that, that's good to know. I think there's an overriding forest health concern. We have three million acres of, just under three million acres of forest land in Iowa, and we know that EAB is probably going to wipe out the majority of ash. That's 5%. But if we get something in here that kills maple or kills oak, or walnut. Walnut's our most valuable export timber tree. We're going to be in a lot of trouble out there in our woodlands. And those areas, instead of being potentially great areas for hunting, for recreation, for uh, economics because of timber sales, they're going to just basically be growing up into species that don't have much wildlife value, don't have much economic value. So instead of having three million acres of potentially really great land that can provide all the benefits that good healthy forests provide, we're going to have junk. Yeah. So it could happen, and I think the first line of defense from keeping that from happening is continuing to keep a viable state forest nursery. One of the things that we've heard in the pre-comment and the comment period, especially when there was some discussion about and really a heightened concern about closing the nursery, is a lot of people responded to that and I think they responded to it a because they many of them were customers of the nursery they depend on the nursery for their plant material but I think also the nursery in some respects represents a conservation ideal it represents the notion that government can actually do something good for the people and can help address that conservation need I compare it a little bit to people that if suddenly somebody said, "Hey, we're going to go, we're going to sell Yellowstone National Park," people would come unglued. Oh yeah, I think so. They may never go to Yellowstone, 
they may never want to go to Yellowstone, but they like the idea that it's there, uh-huh. and there's, there's a place where people can go that's protected. And I think it's a little bit the same with the nursery. They like the idea that they may never plant a tree or a shrub, but they like the idea that people can do that and there's a place where they can get it. And I think it says something about what the state's investment in caring for natural resources is. So it's for a lot of people, it's about the nursery, but I think it's about more than that. And I think it's important that however we can do it, we keep the facility open. And of course our preference is, my preference is, I used to work in the private sector, my preference is getting that place to operate in a way that covers the cost and it's borne by the people who benefit directly from the product. Failing that, I think there's a strong case to be made for regardless of how finding a way to keeping it open and functioning to meet that conservation ideal and to protect the resources. Thank you for this interview. And if people listening want to know more about the State Forest Nursery, you can go to the Department of Natural Resources website at www.iowadnr.gov. Type in State Forest Nursery in the search box, and you'll get out more information. And um, I'd like to thank you again, Paul, for your time today. It's been very informative. Thank you. Thank you for having me.